0: Welcome back, Gold Mine readers and listeners. This is Pat Prince, editor of Gold Mine Magazine, and this is the Gold Mine Podcast. This episode, we'll be talking about grunge, the music phenomenon in the 1990s, and we'll be talking to longtime contributor Dave Thompson, who just put out a paperback called The Grunge Diaries. Seattle, 1990 to 1994. Now, why does it end at 94? Well, Dave will tell you, but it's because right after Kurt Cobain's death, basically the grunge movement kind of tailed off. And he'll go into more details as we get into the podcast. But Dave lived in Seattle throughout the entire 90s. He got there in 1990 and lived the entire decade there he was a he was a contributing editor to alternative press magazine and he reported on the entire grunge movement and this was going to all the clubs and detailing the releases the press junkets going to all the sorts of things that the grunge movement had to to offer and it was quite a scene and dave this is why he made a diary of sorts and this is why that format works he would tell you about going to different clubs and why those clubs were important to the scene and they nurtured bands kind of like how hamburg uh, nurtured the beatles because they got these bands got to play on a consistent basis and they got to fine tune uh, you know, all their songs. And a lot of them, Dave will say that some of them that weren't the best bands made it because they constantly played and performed within these clubs. And what's great about the book is that it has little sidebars on all the clubs. Now, a lot of them are gone, but it is like a travel guide. Um, if a lot of you New Yorkers, um, well, like me, get uh, kind of, you know, excited to read about the Mud Club and CBGB back in the day. And this is the same sort of thing uh, going on here, is that you really get a sense of history. Now, Dave will also talk about, you know, the big bands, Nirvana and Soundgarden, but a lot of the smaller bands, bands that, deserved better, and bands that everyone thought were going to be huge, like Mother Love Bone, but unfortunately, tragedy hit that band. So we're going to talk about grunge and talk about his book, The Grunge Diaries, which, by the way, can be purchased in Goldmine store, shop.goldminemag.com. You could purchase it there. People like Dave who lived through the grunge movement in Seattle will really enjoy this, but you don't have to be someone who lived in Seattle in the 90s. You could read this book and really enjoy and get a sense of history. I mean, this is kind of a must-have for rock history aficionados because they feel you'll get a sense of really being there. So anyway, we'll be back after this message to talk to Dave Thompson about The Grunge Diaries. All right. Welcome, Dave Thompson. We're going to talk about your new book, The Grunge Super- Diaries.
1: Great. Good to be here.
0: So it's it's hard to imagine you living a grunge lifestyle.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it is, isn't it? Um, thankfully, I didn't. Um, I just happened to be in the right place at the wrong at the right time in the wrong shirt.
0: <laughs> so you didn't dress
1: grunge, but you were... In, um, in... No. Uh, I don't know. It didn't really suit me. I've always you paint, been more of a suit and tie boy.
0: I think it was the right way to do this as a diary because you painted a vivid picture of what it was like to live in Seattle in, going to the clubs. And it was an exciting time. And you, you weren't, you know, you lived in London during exciting times, you know, yeah. you lived during the early glam 70s. You lived during the early punk movement in London.
1: So- well, the early glam 70s, don't forget, I was still at school and relatively small. Um, punk was my first summer out of school. And it was indeed very exciting. And the interesting thing was, Got to Seattle and sort of looked around, saw all these clubs, all these bands, and it was I'd not seen so much activity since the late 70s. Mm. Is that everywhere you went, there was a new band that you'd not heard of, some of whom were really good, some of whom were absolutely dire, but That's... they were all just out there doing it. And a lot of the ones I thought were dire, other people loved. So what do I know?
0: Well, sometimes the dire ones turned out to be good. They, after playing for a while, they found. But often
1: the dire ones became the most successful. But we won't go there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you go there a little bit in your book. I mean, you know. Well,
1: yes, but I think Candlebox really only get one mention.
0: <laughs> they do in the beginning. Yes, in the beginning. In fact, I, when I was reading that, I, was, I had to remind myself, oh, yeah, Candlebar.
1: Yeah. Um, I had was, mom,
0: forgotten about them.
1: It was a fascinating time because if you went to one club and didn't really like you know, the atmosphere, the DJ, the bartender, you just wandered to another club, and mm-hmm. there was always something happening. There were always bands playing right and as i said a lot of them yeah you know, it was just like yeah, you know, someone knew, knew three chords had three friends put together a band and they got up there and they would make a god-awful racket and either it was great or it was like okay i won't go and see them next until they're opening for someone else
0: well it's interesting because it's almost like a it can't be like a tour diary if someone was Took a time machine back there and wanted to uh, visit and travel, right? You mentioned you do a little do little sidebars on the clubs. That's
1: that was very very deliberate because I thought of approaching the book as you know a straightforward pose, and then they did this, and then they did that, and it's like no, that is so so boring for something like this where you've got I don't know how many bands I actually talk about in there, you know, several hundred it would just get very 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 confusing so i thought just hit on events gigs record releases as they happen so that you can see you can see everything building evolving and bands breaking through and the sort of places they were playing and the sort of people who were going and you know the shops that were good and the radio stations that were listenable mm. and just get everything You know, its own little moment in the in the sun, as it were.
0: Well, I thought the clubs. I'm glad you did things on the clubs because they were just as important as the bands, right?
1: They were probably more important because you know clubs can survive without bands, but bands can't or couldn't really survive without clubs,
0: right? And they don't. (sighs) They never got mentioned like CBGB and uh, you know when those bands were interviewed, right? I mean, no
1: um not really
0: when you hear interviews of blondie or the the ramones they mention cbgb or the mud club or
1: yeah and the london bands (laughs) will mention the roxy right but seattle i think because there were so many clubs and none of them really ascended to the spot you know to headline status right The Vogue is probably the one that I hear mentioned the most by people who weren't there, Hmm. because that's where Nirvana played their first ever show. And um, I mean that, and it was a really great club. But you know, there were a lot of great clubs there.
0: Was that the which club had the best sound? That's it's. Um,
1: I don't think best sound is really. The way to put it expression you would use. (laughs) Maybe the
0: best scene.
1: Again, there wasn't a club. no particular club had its own scene. I mean, the one places that went for, you know, say a gothic audience or an industrial audience.
0: Right. And
1: yeah, there were a few of those later, they did have a certain unique ambience. Hmm. But amongst the rest of the clubs, there wasn't really a scene. It was, you know, you had your favourites, the crocodile vogue, wherever. But the bands you liked played everywhere. You know, one day they would be at, you know, the Crocodile. The next day they'd be, you know, in a university building. And hmm. the next day they'd be in a park.
0: Well, you do give, so you give smaller bands their due in the Grunge Diaries. That's pretty cool. This is not a book just about the bands that made it. Like they're on a... That, was, the sound crucial. Jam.
1: that was crucial because no scene exists only for the bands that make it out you know there's everybody else the supporting cast is far more important you know be like going to see a tom hanks movie and it's only tom hanks in it it's like well yeah but you're talking to yourself (laughs) a lot um so i wanted to give all all the little bands that i loved i wanted to get in there because no one else has ever written about the wasters jessamine Quiverpus Man, all these wonderful sick and wrong you never no one ever writes about them and it's like they were just as important in their own way as Nirvana soundgarden mudhoney alice etc they and, just didn't get out of seattle
0: and some of these bands like you talk about the melvins mm-hmm. they influenced um, yeah bands like Nirvana, and the Melvins are a survivor, but they never got the commercial success of the Nirvana. No,
1: which is a shame. I mean, I I can see why. I mean, you play Melvins' albums, and you can't imagine them in rotation on you know, Hot Rock FM or MTV. Right. But for the people who love the Melvins, they really love the Melvins. Yes. Whereas Nirvana, I think people could love them or they could just like them and, you know, tap their toes to lithium. Right. And, you know, be happy buying Nevermind.
0: There was more, there was also a pop sensibility with the uh, punk sensibility. Yes. Because um, yeah. a lot of this stuff was, I mean, I do hear people say grunge, really, it's just heavy metal or hard rock, right? But no, it, it has a lot of punk sensibility in it because... It,
1: I mean, it was its own creature. I mean, obviously, you can look at its antecedents and say punk, uh, metal, hair metal, um, you know, classic rock.
0: Right. But
1: it's like when you took... They didn't take every element and they didn't necessarily take the most obvious elements and put them in a pot, you know, jumped up and down on it, and came out with something that really did not sound like anything we'd heard before. Right. Which was, you know, quite an achievement for what most people thought was an Indian village on the edge of the world.
0: Well, <laughs> plus the fact we were in the midst of the hair metal uh, trend, right? Every yeah, and band- we
1: needed, desperately needed something to knock that away but we were also if you remember the state of college radio and mtv in 1990 1991 no disrespect to most of the people i'm going to mention but it was all edie brickell rem um robin hitchcock people like that it was these nice grown-up musicians Mm. And they were all up there being very mature. well, apart from Robin Hitchcock, who was, he was being silly in a mature manner, mm. you know, making us laugh with his 1960s puns. But everybody else was so goddamn serious and so, oh, uh, look at me, I'm very intelligent. I'm losing my religion. I said, I don't care if you're losing your religion. You know, tell us about your libido and your mosquito and things. and that was you know that was the big difference it wiped away a lot of those very po faced grown-ups and gave us a bunch of squalling screaming snotty-nosed kids again
0: but it also these bands weren't like the hair metal bands talking about chicks dude and uh Fast cars, man.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I must, I don't think any grunge song ever, any grunge band ever wrote a song about how great it was to play rock and roll and how they're going to rock and roll all night (laughs) or at least until bedtime. Um, Yeah, it was, it shot down a lot of, of pompousness and a lot of idiocy. And again, you know, some of the some of the bands were you know, they were all right in their place and at the time. But it was nice to get something very very different and very entertaining, something that you actually wanted to like grow your hair and run up to people in the street and go rah, and then run away. <laughs> you, know, you did not do that after listening to REM.
0: Right. You wanted to cut your jeans at the knees.
1: Yeah. And you know. <laughs> well, i didn't of course but um <laughs> well it's like going it, it, against the glam
0: right the glam at the time where you yeah. know the look as
1: yeah and it it was good teenaged music yep and that was the thing that struck me first was you know the early bands that i actually interviewed in seattle and saw were still kind of a hangover of the more Grown up end of things, mm. but you know, they radically or they rapidly um, disclevered it's a good word, isn't it? Mm. They rapidly disclevered and just became fun. And at the same time, you had bands like Sick and Wrong coming up who were running around setting fire to nachos and making horrible noises, and they had. A girl singer who wore a 10-inch dildo hanging down which she used to offer to members of the audience
0: sounds like wendy o williams uh <laughs> is it a- was
1: the- wendy o williams on steroids <laughs> um yeah they i mean they were just so much fun to watch and the audience was fun to watch and if yep. you didn't want to have your eardrums battered you went to see um jim rose circus sideshow hmm. You know, with hanging things from bits you don't normally want to hang things from.
0: Wow. I remember them being, yes, I do remember.
1: Yeah. And, you know, that was interesting. I mean, they were playing the same venues as as the bands. Now. The that Cameron Crowe went and filmed in singles. The Jim Rose Sideshow were probably there the night before. That's Dang.
0: interesting. <laughs> that you mentioned singles.
1: <laughs> mm. Yes,
0: he tried one to cash them. in on that uh, grunge wave.
1: No, that's cruel. That is very cruel. <laughs> um, I mean, he was in Seattle at the time. He was friends with a lot of people. He was, you know, one of the friends of Andrew Wood, the singer with Mother Love Bone, who died. Oh, um, he
0: was okay. So
1: he, he was around, and his vision, apparently. Uh, you can only go by what he says. But his vision was, you know, they were sitting there. It was so pretty much the night of, I I think it was the night of after Andrew's funeral. And they they were all sitting in the room together. And he just thought, I want to make a movie about friendship. Hmm. And so, you know, he shot it in Seattle because I think that's where he lived. And that's where the people he wanted in the movie lived or a lot of the people. Mm-hmm. But somehow because Seattle was rising, it got twisted by the machine. Yes. And what should have been just a fun yeah, you know, a fun, slightly edgy rom com took on this vast aura of being the last word in being grunge.
0: Right. It was and that's why I should say it wasn't him, it was more. It like wasn't
1: what the film wanted if it, and okay. Under any normal circumstances, it would have just been another When Harry Met Sally. Yeah. Um, what's the one with um, her from F- Cheers with the blind ferret? Um, it would have just been yeah, a fun rom-com. rom-com.
0: <laughs> Polly, yes. Along right.
1: came Polly, that's right. I love right. that. Well, no, I love
0: That's ferret. a good movie. Um I love <clears throat> Much better than uh, the others you mentioned. Um yes. But yeah, I it's interesting you mentioned uh, Mother Love Bone in the book. You claim that they were the band that everyone thought were going to be the next big thing.
1: Yeah, they you know they had the deal, they had the look, they had the sound. Um, yeah, you know, they looked great. They moved great. Um, unfortunately, it wasn't to be.
0: Well, and, they're being know, promoted too very well. Yeah, they're being marketed. <laughs>
1: Um, marketing could probably have been better. Their first American tour was a little bit of a disaster, but I think if they had actually survived to get the album out, things might've been slightly different in the future. Um, you know, for better and for worse, for one thing we wouldn't, we wouldn't have got Pearl Jam.
0: Yeah. Oh dear. I happen to like Pearl Jam, not their first few albums, but I think they got better with time. Mm. Um, I think it's one of the worst names. Um, But then again, I think Led Zeppelin's the best name. So, I I don't know.
1: (laughs) I don't even know where to go with
0: that. Pearl Jam, to me, (laughs) the sexual innuendo is just awful.
1: Yes, but... I, you know, I
0: remember I was wearing a mother love bone shirt and someone came out to me, What an awful name! Hmm. Well, look what Pearl Jam, (laughs) yeah.
1: I, but you know, is that the name or is that just your filthy mind?
0: Maybe it's my filthy mind,
1: yeah. I always, or
0: maybe, maybe I'm just a you know, a Victorian snob and I'm thinking
1: there could be that as well. I was never a Pearl Jam fan. Uh, I must admit, I liked Mother Love. Tell by
0: you. your reaction.
1: I, I, I tried to hide it, <laughs> but I saw them a few times early, and they were one of those bands. I just, oh dear, they're doomed. And really? suddenly they're, you know, the second biggest thing in the city. It's like, how did that happen? MTV. Yeah, but they were it's not that they were photogenic or make great videos. Yeah, still the only Pearl Jam song I could sing if I was disposed to sing is Opera Man's version of oh, was it man. Jeremy or flow or something. Yeah, you know, the one that goes, hee haw, yabba yabba, yabba yabba.
0: That's pretty good.
1: <laughs> and it's like that's the only one I know. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, I heard them all at the time incessantly.
0: So you, you name a lot of bands that never made it. Can,
1: never made You gotta pick
0: all these bands, right? One band for the listener. Hmm. If you had to pick and turn a listener onto, what which band would it be?
1: It depends what the listener likes, quite honestly because the beauty of the Seattle scene, oh, I hate that phrase, but the beauty of Seattle at that time, unlike any other emergent musical, what we now refer to as a genre, is there was no single specific sound. Okay. If you were into prog, you could find prog bands playing. If you were into punk, there were bucket loads. If you were into you know, art, jazz, jazz, freeform dance praying mantis music there were bands doing it i my favorite space rock seattle band was uh sky cries mary okay my favorite kraut rock seattle band was hovercraft
0: let's let's play this game if you're into nirvana then listen um
1: you are shorter like grave robbing no um You know, I don't know. Nirvana were fairly unique.
0: Well, how about this? If you're into Soundgarden, then you'd like...
1: Alice in Chains.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, man.
1: The, I mean, the other interesting thing, I think, is the bands that were good at what they did and actually broke through mm. remained the best at what they did. If you look at all the little Nirvanas that followed on, Yeah. None of them were as good as the real thing. And why would you listen to them, let alone mention their name? Right. When you could just go to the source. Yeah. I think of that awful band whose name I cannot remember, but they opened for the Stones on the Voodoo Lounge tour. Um, What do I call them? Oh, um, Temple of the Gossard Jets, Stone Temple Pilots. Oh. Yes, then. <clears throat> yeah, they who, were like po- they were almost post grunge. They were they were sort of they weren't even post, they were like
0: they were at the maybe. end of the grunge
1: era. They came well, they came late, but they were so desperately trying to capture that grungy spirit. Right. And it didn't work and it wasn't at all convincing and i've always believed that if you're going to be in a band you have to be convincing
0: so wait you they open for the stones
1: they open for the stones yeah at least in seattle
0: Mm -hmm.
1: i Um, I was quite mortified that oh god i'm going to see this band
0: (laughs) (laughs) you could have arrived late you know (laughs)
1: As yeah, a stand gig you want to be there early so that you can like take in the atmosphere and look at the stage being warmed up and things
0: were you did you regret at all that the, the glam metal movement was destroyed were there any bands that you liked from that 80s <laughs> late 80s movement or no I know you, I know you liked the early 70s glam
1: <clears throat> uh, 80s glam bands that I liked um... Zero, right? Yeah, that's very, very. Yeah, I probably liked Zero. I heard they were good. Um, <laughs> no, I have never been a big metal fan to be honest. Right. Um, yeah, when I was very, very small, and people like Sabbath and Purple. But
0: this wasn't. This wasn't through. really metal, was it?
1: I mean, it was sort of. Well, like, it was. It wanted to be metal, but it was it pop.
0: Was, that had metal Guitar. guitars, right?
1: Yeah, loud guitars and bizarre hair. And, um, and, and so and, Yeah, I'm, I'm fine with the loud guitars. I'm fine with bizarre hair, but I don't like riffs. No? Not when they're combined with. Oh, okay. Um, no, I mean, it was. And again, you know, we've already discussed sort of their standard lyrical content. <laughs> and. I've always thought that bands singing about rock you and roll... Into, you weren't into cherry pie. I wasn't into people singing about their day job, <laughs> quite honestly. yeah. You know, if I was... a, I mean, I write, but I don't sort of walk around saying, I'm going to write on my typewriter all night. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I don't do that. And I don't see why bands would want to tell me they're going to rock and roll all night, because, yes, that's your job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could jazz and bop all night as well, if you like. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, plumbers don't plumber. Hey, here's plumbers. a new book.
0: How many bands have written a song about rock? <laughs> uh,
1: too many, including some that I really like. The, you know, like the, the, the Who, The Stones. Um, yes, I, most of them have done it. But... It, it just seems something so redundant about it.
0: Yeah, it got to the point where it was just like mailing it in.
1: Yeah. Um, there was also, also that Joe Walsh song, was it Life's Being Good? And he's just yeah. singing about, you know, what he's done in his career that you haven't. And it's like, well, whoopee doo.
0: Well, yeah, it's like we got five minutes to write a song. Yeah. To Living After Midnight. We're gonna <laughs> rock and roll.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we we have got off the topic of grunge, which I think was great, or Seattle. It was great because it it de can I say bullshit on a podcast? Yeah, sure. A oh, bugger, I just did. Um it de bullshitted um, rock and roll for a time. Yeah, it did. And yeah. You know, we needed that. N- nothing had come along that was that excruciating since punk. So what's. And yeah. Grunge came along and it's just like, right, I've got a flamethrower. You have three seconds to leave the chart or else. And all these bands went eek and ran away.
0: It was refreshing. Now we're waiting yeah. for the next refreshing thing.
1: Oh, there won't be one
0: rock for rock not for pop i don't
1: think there will be one when the industry is not geared to a club scene or a genre scene building at a grassroots level as soon as a group raises its head above the parapet and says oh look we've made a good record Suddenly, they're the biggest thing ever. And everybody jumps on it because they're scared of being left behind. And the poor band is just what do we do? We can't develop because everybody's watching us. We can't make mistakes and they make rotten records instead. Hmm. And that's been going on for so long now. It's probably been going on as long as rock and roll existed before it started to happen. So now ingrained in our psyche that I saw a good band last night. They're the best thing ever. And they got to be on every newspaper, which is a dreadfully cynical thing to say. But
0: so travel to Seattle now. What's it like now? What's the scene? I haven't
1: got a clue. I've not been back there in 15 years.
0: Have you heard from people who are there? I've
1: heard from people. It sounds very different. Um, when I got there, so we're talking 1990, 1991, it was still, it was a small city. It was self-contained. Uh, I say in the introduction that, you know, when the when the mountains are closed by snow and the bridge is up, you yeah you know, the airport is fogged in, you are isolated.
0: Yeah, you know, there is the no
1: way out. And now, you know, that's not the case because you know if nothing else, you know, we can escape electronically. Yes. Okay. Um it was very isolated. You know the buildings were they all tended to be old red brick, crumbly um, shop fronts were shoddy looking. Chain stores moved in, but they always looked really awkward. Hmm. Um, it was very atmospheric and really quite exciting. And then, as time went by, more, more and more people moved in from elsewhere, and I can't, yeah, you know, I can't complain about that because I was one of them. But then the tech companies came in, and prices started to rise, and these glass and steel things started to appear. Um, I think what summed it up for me was, shortly before my wife and I moved away, a friend came up to visit from Bogota, Colombia, which, you know, let's face it, is not renowned as one of the most sparkling, beautiful cities in the world. Right. And we were walking across the road and he turned to us and he said, I am so glad you are leaving this effing slum. Hmm. <laughs> and that that really stuck with me, because even though the slum conditions were caused by construction and the displacement of the homeless and the closure of shops because rents were getting so high. Hmm. Um it really didn't feel like a cohesive city anymore it felt like it felt like a building site hmm. and a lot of that has now been completed and friends will call and will say yeah so how's things out there and they say oh you know they knocked down this and they've built that and there's you know tunnels under the city and all I can think of is this series of books that came out, I think the early 2000s by this author named Cherie Priest, called The Clockwork Century. And uh, the main conceit is, Seattle was leveled by an earthquake. And at the bottom of the chasm, there is this gas that leaks out and turns everybody into zombies.
0: Hmm.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. as far as somebody writing something about their home city that is not very nice i think yeah. she did a great job it's like when um hg wells decided he hated was it woking in south Long- in south england so he had it wiped out by martians right <laughs> what um what happened to the club scene um rents went up um Less bands were around to play and keep the audience ticking over. Right. Um, you know, Leases expired. They moved out. The Vogue is now a hairdresser, I believe. Mm. Um, Rock Candy was demolished. The Crocodile closed. They all closed, or a lot of them closed. Okay. Or they moved to a new place that wasn't so centrally located.
0: Reminds me of how I feel about New York City. It used to be a great place to go for clubs, especially in the early 80s. Like mm, yeah. And now it's kind of like there's nothing there in Manhattan. Everything's in Brooklyn, if you want to experience and that's it. a
1: That's a little harsh on New York City. The last time I was there, <laughs> I, there were so many places I could buy a cell phone case. Oh, yes. And next door, they sold bubble tea.
0: And, so and if you go to New York for software.
1: Yeah. Um and that's I think that's the other thing in Seattle is it, when we got there, it was there was bookshops everywhere, used bookshops. Right. And yeah. You know, sue me, I love old books. Yeah. So we yeah, you know, walk around and it's like you trip over bookshops everywhere but slowly the bookshops started to migrate out of the city or online to be replaced by coffee shops. Mm. And my feeling has always been, you could go out for a day, you could tour every bookshop, you could buy something in there and you know you would have you a know, hundred books to read. If you did that with coffee shops, you'd be up all night in the loo, in the bathroom, sorry.
0: So you didn't change from tea to coffee?
1: Um, I've always drunk coffee really yeah wow um, even in England um, I mean I love tea and I you know I drink it, I drink it in the morning and I have it in the afternoon but because um, that's the kinks influence but <laughs> yeah. I, I, drink coffee, I drink coffee most of the day and night Interesting. <laughs> yeah even have a really great you know Coffee source in Brooklyn, funnily enough,
0: and it's not—it's <clears throat> not Starbucks.
1: No, we <laughs> order. Found this great place, um, Seattle's best. <laughs> no, they're called Puerto Rico Coffee Company, <laughs> and they do—you know—bags of like hundreds of varieties of really good coffee, reasonable prices. Yeah. You know, God, I sound like a commercial, don't I? Go draw coffee here. Well, this panel had really... an
0: influence on you in many ways.
1: <laughs> yeah, we yeah you know, we order like a month, six weeks worth of different coffees every six weeks, and uh, get through them very quickly.
0: Well, guess what? You can now buy the Grunge Diaries in the Goldmine Store.
1: Yes, that is. I'm so excited about that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so I people so can read your store. stuff. People can read your articles and then click and and buy your books. So that's cool. (laughs) You also have a Donna Summer book. Maybe you want to talk a little about that as well.
1: Yes. um, It was strange. I wrote three books over a three-year period, um, pretty much a year apart. There was the Donna Summer one, which I'll get to in a moment. There was Grunge, and there was also a book with Jim McCarty, of the Mm Yardbirds, and I think as a combination of COVID and probably COVID, they they came out within six weeks of one another. Yep, And it's suddenly like, wow, that's strange. But the Donna Summer book, it's slightly misleading to call it a Donna Summer book, even though she's on the cover. Um, It's called I Feel Love, and it's the story of how that one song made such a huge difference to pop rock and electronica. Hmm. Um, And I trace, through the course of the book, I trace Donna's career. I trace George Moroda, the producer's career, of course. But I also wander into areas that were completely disparate, but which this song brought together or that record brought together in the public mind and suddenly electronics weren't just this thing that went woo 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 on 70s prog albums they you know could create a beat they could create a rhythm they could create a tune
0: right
1: um so i bring all these things together and then just follow the song's career over the ensuing Thirty years, which I hope doesn't sound dreadfully drab.
0: No, gold goldmine readers love the analysis of songs, so I'm sure. Yeah,
1: that's... I actually found it quite. It was very entertaining to write because I was a. It was another of those instances like grunge, where I was able to highlight artists who I did not feel ever got their fair crack of the whip, and talk about their contributions to what we now listen to and think of as just normal so there was a lot of that going in and then there was just having fun with some of the awful cover versions and soundalikes and ripoffs that had come out over the years that want to be I Feel Love but don't quite have that magic and you know I talk to people like Todd Rungren who I can't believe they had a hit with a noise I used to make in my bedroom. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was such a great remark. So it only has 19 words in it, and most of them are simply syllables. <laughs> I was like, go, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Jim Kerr admitting that what destroyed their little punk band and made them form Simple Minds was hearing I Feel Love. Huh. Uh, banana the girls from Banana Rama you know they were like fifteen you know fifteen sixteen they heard I feel love it was like the greatest record um I mean all this just sort of coming together was it was just so much fun putting it doing it
0: very cool well thank you Dave.
1: thank you this and is we'll I hope be, this is usable.
0: we'll be on the of course it is you'll be on the <laughs> podcast again and readers. Yes the new book is called the grunge diaries seattle 1990 wow. to 1994 and you can get it in our bookstore goldmine bookstore shop.goldminemag.com
1: All and you right, didn't Dave. ask you didn't ask why i ended in 1994
0: well i thought that was obvious right but go ahead
1: because i ran out of i ran out of space yeah <laughs> <laughs> the book had a certain length and I got to 1994, and I did it um, the, my original intention was to do the entire decade and but it would have ended up the size of Manhattan phone directory
0: and you would have had to include Stone Temple Pilots
1: yes and I would probably still be writing it now <laughs> <laughs> <So> 1914 place <laughs> to end I and mean, Cobain's death obviously played a part in the end of the scene but the scene was already on its way out yeah so kind uh, of where,
0: how i saw it like it really stopped midway through the 90s and then you started getting a lot of these uh hybrid rap metal bands and yeah hard grunge copycats um
1: I mean, I knew it was over when Alternative Press, which was the magazine I was writing for, and this would have been in, like, 1993, um, stopped saying yes when I asked them if they wanted an interview with a local band and sent me off to talk to somebody from somewhere else. Uh, yeah. I th- I think the 90s were actually, you know, the first half of the 90s were really exciting because we had grunge and then... Growing up sort of alongside it, but outlasting it a little was Britpop. Yeah, Um,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: And both uh, both movements I really enjoyed, albeit for different reasons. Um, But I think that was sort of rock and roll's last true hurrah. And everything after that struck me as a little too either repetitive or redolent of something I'd already got.
0: All right, we'll talk to you soon.
1: Talk to you soon. Bye bye.
0: Thanks, Dave Thompson. Don't forget, listeners, to pick up the Grunge Diaries. You could pick it up at shop.goldminemag.com. That's where you could purchase the book. And also, don't forget to go to Barnes and Noble or Books a Million to pick up the new print edition. The print edition is always there every month. And you could also go to select record stores that carry it. Now also go to goldminemag.com to read exclusive content, not in the print edition. Lots of columns, lots of interesting stuff, and collecting resources. Okay, this is Pat Prince. We'll see you next time on the Goldmine Podcast.